Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 13th Monday reading of the Colorado Sun. My name is Andrew Post. Today we'll be reading the following main articles. How much snow will your favorite Colorado ski resort get? Here's How to Tell by William Alstetter. Dave Williams elected to lead battered Colorado GOP for the next two years by Sandra Fish. Michaela Schifrin sets World Cup skiing record with 87th win by the Associated Press. Three Elizabeth School Board members threatened to resign, say chaos over CRT and other issues is unproductive. Colorado will start licensing dental therapists in effort to help expand oral health care options. This by Tatiana Flowers. Colorado Democrats unveil effort to shield abortion transgender patients from out-of-state legal consequences by Jesse Paul and Elliot Wensler, as well as following up with miscellaneous articles. How much snow will your favorite Colorado ski resort get? Here's how to tell. Open snow forecasters give some clues about when and why Colorado ski areas get big snow. This by William Alstetter. <clears throat> Colorado's jagged jumble of mountains, valleys, ridges, and rivers creates a multitude of microclimates that can cause snowfall on a particular day to range from two feet of legendary champagne powder at Steamboat to just an inch at Aspen. Joel Gratz and Sam Collentine, forecasters at Open Snow, have a better handle on this than most people, and took some time away from predicting snowfall at Colorado ski resorts to offer clues about when it will snow at your favorite Colorado ski resort, starting with the basics. Why Colorado Gets Snowstorms Gratz said stormy weather involves a pretty simple recipe. In fact, he joked, the first page of all meteorology textbooks should say, for interesting weather, you need moisture and rising air. Westerly winds high in the atmosphere pick up moisture over the Pacific Ocean. Some of that moisture becomes snow as the wind crosses mountain ranges west of Colorado, such as the Sierra Nevada in California and the Wasatch in Utah. Exactly how much is left for Colorado depends on a variety of factors. Rising air can be caused by a variety of factors as well, such as low pressure system, when the jet stream is directly overhead, or a storm system that is spinning strongly counterclockwise. It also rises when it hits a mountain range. Wind direction is an especially especially potent factor in the Colorado snow forecast, and Gratz's daily snows reports are peppered with comments about wind directions driving snowfall at different resorts. Sometimes the storm energy itself, the jet stream overhead, or other factors will just overwhelm a bad wind direction and generate the snow, Gratz said. But in big mountains here in Colorado, in my brain, two-thirds of the time, the wind direction is a really, really big deal. 
Below are conditions that will generate the most snowfall at various resorts in Colorado. When Colorado ski areas get their best snow. Wolf Creek Ski Area Storms coming in from Southern California have no huge mountains to traverse before hitting Wolf Creek in southwestern Colorado. Loaded with moisture and rising sharply to Wolf Creek Pass, an elevation of 10,856 feet, these west-southwest and southwest winds make Wolf Creek near Pagosa Springs the snowiest resort in the state. A southwest wind will crush Wolf Creek, said Collentine, Open Snow's chief operating officer. Steamboat Ski Area Steamboat in northwestern Colorado enjoys similar flat landscape to its immediate west, making for strong lift and good snowfall in the mountains in Utah that have not stolen all the moisture. When you get in the right amount of moisture coming in on a west or west-northwest wind and a temperature at the summit of about 5 degrees, you can get a steamboat surprise, an unexpected deep snowfall. At Steamboat, I have seen the biggest upside surprises, says Gratz, CEO and co-founder of Open Snow. Not that they have the most surprises, but I've seen the biggest surprises out there, he said. Crested Butte Ski Area Crested Butte is surrounded by large mountains, the Elk Mountains to the northwest and to the southeast in the direction of Monarch Pass. But a west-southwest wind threads the needle between the high peaks and runs on runs into Mount Crested Butte and snows big time, Collentine said. There's a slight little sliver in the valley and you're running up to Crested Butte from the west-southwest. It's wide open. Vail Ski Area Vail does best in a northwest wind. The air is funneling right into the Vail Valley right along the Gore Mountains. At the ski resort, it's rising. It just unloads on Vail, Collentine said. Winter Park Ski Area Winter Park also benefits from a north-northwest wind coming down the Fraser Valley. Breckenridge, Keystone, Arapaho Basin, and Loveland Ski Areas Summit County Resorts and Loveland on the Continental Divide have big mountains in almost all directions. They generally do best when the wind comes out of the north to northeast, sorry, north to northwest, but rarely do they get the really big snowfalls. Snow can pile up at Breckenridge, Keystone, Arapaho Basin, and Loveland after a stormy low-pressure system has passed onto Colorado's eastern plains and is strengthening there. The spinning storm draws up moist air from the Gulf of Mexico, wraps it around Wyoming's high plains, then sends it down south into the Summit County Mountains. Copper Mountain Ski Area Copper Mountain is an in-between case. It can get snow like Vail on northwest winds, but like its Summit County Piers, its higher elevation can generate more snow than comes to Vail or to Beaver Creek. Eldora Mountain Eldora, west of Boulder, can also benefit from the wraparound moisture brought in on an easterly wind from a storm tracking from southern Colorado or New Mexico onto the plains of Texas and Kansas. This is the same wind that brings the smell of the stockyards and heavy snowfall to Denver. Telluride Ski Area Telluride is tricky as the ski area is surrounded by big mountains on most sides. While strong storms can deliver decent snowfall with a wind from the southwest, the most snow at Telluride usually comes with a wind blowing from the west or west-northwest.
Purgatory Ski Area. Purgatory in the southern San Juan Mountains gets the most snow if the wind is blowing from the south or south-southwest as it, as it moves over the relatively lower elevation terrain near Durango and hits the bigger mountains around the resort and Coal Bank Pass to the north. Aspen Snowmass and Aspen Highlands Snowmass in Aspen Highlands can do okay with a wind from the west-southwest, but the biggest snowfalls on the four roaring Fork Valley ski hills, including, including buttermilk, usually are created by a wind from the west and the west-northwest. Also, a wind from the northwest can generate significant snowfall at Aspen Highlands Highland Bowl and at Aspen Mountain. Dave Williams elected to be or to lead battered Colorado GOP for the next two years. Williams, an election denier and former state representative who made an unsuccessful 2000, sorry, 2022 congressional bid, bid succeeds Christy Burton Brown. This by Sandra Fish. Loveland. Former state representative Dave Williams, a 2020 election denier, will lead the Colorado GOP for the next two years after beating out six other contenders in three rounds of voting on Saturday by the party's state central committee. Williams of Colorado Springs will secede Christy Burton Brown, who decided to step aside after two years as the GOP chair, including a 2022 election with disastrous results for the party. Indicted former Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters, who was also running Saturday to be the Colorado GOP chair, threw her support to Williams after the second round of voting, making a public announcement from the floor that earned a rebuke from Burton Brown for violating party bylaws. Williams, who lost a GOP primary to U.S. Representative Doug Lamborn last year after unsuccessfully trying to get his name listed on the ballot as Dave Let's Go Brandon Williams, gave a fiery speech defending former President Donald Trump. Like Peters, Williams believes that Trump won the 2020 election despite no verified evidence of fraud or malfeasance that would have overturned the results. We are the party that elected Donald J. Trump, and we're not going to apologize, Williams said. It's time to go back on the attack, so why don't we go on offense, offense, offense? Williams beat Eric Adland with 55% of the vote to Adland's 45% in the final round of voting. Adlin lost the 7th Congressional Contest in 2022 by 15 percentage points to Democratic U.S. Representative Brittany Peterson. About 20 votes separated Adlin and Williams, two in the first two rounds. Adlin gave a more conciliatory speech in trying to persuade hundreds of Central Committee members to vote for him. I need you... I need you to come together with me in this common cause, as there is more that unites us than divides us, Adland had said. The house is burning, and we've got to put out the fire. But Adland and Williams are among the six of the seven candidates for the top job who either denied that Democratic President Joe Biden won the 2020 election or questioned the outcome of the contest. Williams pledged Saturday that the party will go to court to prevent unaffiliated voters from participating in the GOP primary election. A similar effort by individual Republicans failed in federal court in 2022. 
Right now, there are efforts to eliminate the caucus by the consultant class and a wealthy, unaffiliated millionaire who hates our party, he said, referencing Kent Theory, the former DeVita CEO. Williams has also criticized past party leadership. Our party doesn't have a brand problem, he said. Our party has a problem with feckless leaders who are ashamed of you and ashamed of our conservative values. Williams, who often stoked controversy in the legislature and had a falling out with Trump's 2020 re-election campaign officials in Colorado, said he'll be reorganizing the state party staff. Everyone's going to have to go through a thorough rehiring process. They're going to resubmit their applications, he said. Brown presided over a 2022 election in which Democrats decisively retained control of a U.S. Senate seat and all four statewide elected offices. They also won two open congressional seats and expanded their majorities in both the state House and Senate. They even forced a recount in U.S. Representative Lauren Boebert's heavily Republican district, where she won by only four, I'm sorry, 546 votes. The GOP won't have another real shot at power in the state until 2026, when all four statewide offices are open because of term limits, and Democratic U.S. Senator John Hickenlooper faces his first re-election bid. The Colorado Republican Party has been shedding voters since Trump won the presidency in 2016. Another 10,000 active voters left the GOP from November 1st through February 1st. Democrats lost about 5,000 voters in that same span, while the number of unaffiliated voters in Colorado increased by about 11,000. Peters faces trial this summer on felony charges that she orchestrated a breach of Mesa County's election system, and her GOP leadership platform was based solely on election denial, but she never received more than 10.5% of the vote on Saturday. <clears throat> Only one candidate for chair said they opposed closing the Republican primary to unaffiliated voters, former Mesa County GOP chair Kevin McCarney. He received the same number of votes as Peters. Honor all Republican voices, he said. We must be inclusive, not exclusive. Saturday followed two long days in the State House and Senate where and coincided with a rare Saturday House floor session that prevented House Republicans from participating in the GOP Central Committee meeting. U.S. Representative Ken Buck of Windsor addressed the gathering earlier in the day, but told The Sun he wasn't taking a position on the chairman's and wouldn't vote. He served as party chairman from 2018 to 2020, all elected officials are part of the Central Committee, but U.S. Representative Lauren Boebert of Garfield County and Doug Lamborn of Colorado Springs didn't attend the event. It wasn't clear if they had submitted proxy votes. Colorado Democratic Party Chair Morgan Carroll is also stepping aside after six years of leading her party. Her successor will be elected on April 1st. Michaela Schifrin sets World Cup skiing record with 87th win. Schifrin broke a tie with Ingemar Stenmark on the all-time overall winners lists between men and women. The Swede competed in the 1970s and 80s. This by the Associated Press. Ara Sweden 
two minutes after earning her 87th career win, Michaela Schifrin finally understood the significance of setting the record for most World Cup victories. In the middle of the awards ceremony, a man in a red jacket unexpectedly stepped forward from the crowd, and that was the moment Schifrin first realized what it meant to her. It was her brother Taylor, who had secretly flown into Sweden and now came over to hug her. I've said it the whole time. I don't know how to define that, Schifrin said about the record. But when you have these special moments, seeing my brother and sister-in-law Christy and my mom and coach Eileen in the finish today, that's what makes it memorable. The Vail Racer set the outright World Cup record for most career victories by winning a slalom Saturday, breaking a tie with Ingemar Stenmark on the all-time overall winners lists between men and women. The Swede competed in the 1970s and 80s. Schifrin had matched Stenmark's mark of 86 wins with a victory in a giant slalom on Friday. Pretty hard to comprehend, said Schifrin, who crouched and rested her head on her knees after finishing the final run. Runner-up Wendy Holdener of Switzerland and third-place home favorite Anna Sven, Larsen came over to congratulate her. My brother and sister-in-law here, and I didn't even know that they were coming. That's what makes it so special, Schifrin said. They flew here for this. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they got here. The victory gave Schifrin the outright record 12 years to the day after her first race win on the World Cup as a 15-year-old at a GS in Spindler Min in Czech Republic. In a course-side interview, Schifrin said she's so proud of the team this whole season for being strong and positive and having the right goals. Schifrin set the record less than a month after her head coach, Mike Day, left the team in the second week of the World Championships in France. Day's departure, however, had not has not affected Schifrin's achievements as she won GS Gold and Slalom Silvers at the Worlds, wrapped up her overall world title at speed races in Norway last weekend, and celebrated back-to-back -back wins in Sweden to become the winningest ski racer in the 56-year history of the World Cup. Saturday's result marks marked the Americans' sixth slalom win of the season and the record-extending 53rd career win in the discipline. Schifrin also has a women's record equaling 20 wins in GS, or Giant Slalom, as well as five in Super G, five in Parallel, three in Downhill, and one in Combined. It's pretty hard to describe, and it's not over yet, which is even more ridiculous, said Schifrin, who turns 28 on Monday and is expected to continue until at least the 2026 Winter Olympics in Italy. Apart from Stenmark's record, which she never actively chased, Schifrin had no pressure on her shoulders going into her 246th career World Cup race on Saturday, having already locked up the discipline title in slalom. On Friday, she had also secured the GS season title. I still had the feeling at the start of this run that I have at every race. It's like I shouldn't feel pressure. But somehow I feel something in my heartbeat, Schifrin said, about having to protect her lead after dominating the first run. Schifrin posted the fifth fastest time in the, in the second run to beat Holdener by 0.92 seconds. Sven Larsen was 0.95 back and the last racer to finish within a second of Schifrin's time. 
Schifrin's teammate Paula Moltson finished 1.54 seconds behind in fourth in the American's first race since fracturing her left hand last month. The best feeling is to ski on the second run when, of course, you want to win. You have the lead, so you're there. So you have to sort of be smart, but also I just wanted to be fast, too, and ski the second run like it was its own race, Schifrin said. I did exactly that, and that is amazing. The race took place at a venue where many key moments in Schifrin's career have happened. At the Swedish Lakeside Resort, she earned her first World Cup win in 2012 and took slalom gold at the 2019 World Championships to become the first skier to win the world title in one discipline four times in a row. However, Are was also the place where she sustained a knee injury that kept her away from the slopes for two months in the 2015-2016 season and where she was due to race again in March 2020 after the death of her father the previous month. But those races were called off on short notice after Schifrin's arrival in Sweden because of the coronavirus pandemic. Schifrin is set to compete in three more races this season at next week's World Cup Finals in Soldau, Andorra. While she planned to skip Wednesday's downhill, she will race in a Super G the following day and in a slalom and GS during the weekend. Three Elizabeth School Board members threatened to resign, and they say chaos over CRT and other issues is unproductive. Conservative board members are wary of public constantly bringing up issues of critical race theory, social-emotional learning, and restorative justice, which are not taught in the district. This by Thelma Grimes. Three Elizabeth School Board District members say they're tired of constant public comments and emails about critical race theory, social-emotional learning, and restorative justice have turned in letters of re resignation. The three conservative board members said in letters that they will be officially submitted during the board's regular meeting on Monday and that comments are unnecessary because they agree the programs should not be taught in the school district. Copies of the resignations were made available to the public on Friday. The letters were sent from the board members Craig Blackham, Kim from Veller, and Carrie Karcher. Board meetings have become chaotic and have brought behavior unbecoming of the community, the letter from Karcher said. Public comment has become the priority for board meetings, which I believe is important if constructive but that cannot consume most of our meetings. Besides continuous public comments, resigning board members said they get up at 6 a.m. to an influx of emails complaining about the programs that are not taught or used in the district. District spokesman Jason Hackett said in an email that at least three board members had said they would be submitting letters of resignation. A vote of the board is required to accept them. The board is expected to conduct regular business at its Monday meeting, including approval of the new superintendent contract, and then submit the official resignations with an effective date of March 14th. If all goes to planned, all goes as planned on Monday, three members would be leaving the board, leaving only two to vote to accept the resignations, which does not constitute a quorum. The two board members that had not submitted letters of resignation by Friday were Treasurer Rhonda Olson and Assistant Secretary Heather Booth.
Colorado will soon start licensing dental therapists in an effort to help expand oral health care options. A 2022 bill provided the means for licensing dental therapists, a mid-level provider who could narrow the oral health equity gap, but training for them doesn't exist in Colorado. This by Tatiana Flowers. Five Colorado counties don't have a single dental provider, meaning people often drive long distances for routine care. One in five Coloradans report having fair or poor oral health. 53 of Colorado's 64 counties have dental health professional shortages, and adults in rural areas have almost twice the prevalence of tooth loss when compared to their urban counterparts. Only 28% of Colorado dentists served any Medicaid-enrolled patients in 2018 and in low-income schools. 44% of all kindergartners had at least one cavity, according to data collected by Healthier Colorado, which is a nonprofit that works to influence public policy to improve health care for people across the state. A law passed last year was intended to help close those oral health gaps by authorizing dental therapists to work in the state, but it may be years before enough of these mid-level clinicians are working in Colorado to make a difference. On May 1st, Colorado will begin issuing licenses to people who have completed dental therapy degrees or have practiced in the military or are licensed in the 13 other states where their work is legal. The degree is not offered by any Colorado colleges, nor does the state currently offer a licensing exam. For now, people interested in the profession must trade elsewhere. Only Alaska, Minnesota, and Washington have education programs. Healthier Colorado, which lobbied last year for the passage of Senate Bill 219, hopes to work with partner organizations such as the American Academy of Pediatrics, Delta Dental, and Colorado Community Health Network to create a statewide dental therapy education program. (laughs) Clinicians could expand capacity, but where will they train? Dental therapists, similar to physician assistants, can offer more care than a dental hygienist, but less care than a dentist. Therapists can fill cavities, clean teeth, place temporary crowns, and perform extractions, for example. Once a local education program is created, perhaps at the community college level, Coloradans will begin to see many more dental therapists who are supervised by dentists working in dental practices, schools, mobile clinics, nursing homes, and other community settings, said Kyle Picola, Vice President of Communication and Advocacy for Healthier Colorado. Research in Massachusetts, one of the states considering authorizing the practice, suggests adding a dental therapist to a clinic could expand capacity by 1,920 appointments per year. It's proven to be really safe and has proven to have really phenomenal health outcomes for people, and that's important, Pecola said. Eventually, this is going to be a really big deal. At least one critic has said it's unclear if there's enough state funding to help educate and train dental therapists, especially while Colorado already underinvests in higher education, including for dentists and dental hygienists. 
Colleen Lamprin, president of AFL Enterprises, a public health contracting company in Denver, is a former executive director of the National Network for Oral Health Access. She supports bringing dental therapists of two, I'm sorry, to Colorado, but called Senate Bill 219 flawed. We already don't have enough resources to train our dentists and dental hygienists, and now you want to add a completely new profession with a new curriculum and new graduation requirements, she said. Where are the people going to come from to teach those courses, and how will we pay for it? The University of Colorado School of Dental Medicine, for example, suspended admissions to its dental hygiene program indefinitely because of cost concerns, she said. The last class of CU dental hygiene students graduated in May 2009. There are four accredited dental hygiene programs offered in Colorado at the community colleges of Northwestern Colorado, Pueblo, and Denver, and at Concord Career College. Picola said Senate Bill 219 merely created the scope of practice and authority to license dental practices and that healthier Colorado leaders plan to work with state budget writers and community colleges to find funding for a new dental therapy education program. Dental therapy education programs in other states that have been set up through local partnerships and private and public funding, Picola said. This is an effort to build a pipeline of dental therapists to address oral health. The Colorado Consumer Health Initiative conducted a 2022 survey to assess Coloradans' oral health needs and experiences. Despite a desire for good dental health, half of the 422 respondents reported having oral pain or feeling self-conscious about their mouth's appearance. 47% of respondents who needed immediate care said they had to wait for more than one month to secure an appointment, and 73% said they did not access care because it was too expensive. The mouth is a part of the body, and we've learned if you have gum disease that can make it harder to control diabetes, and it has an effect perhaps on heart disease, said Dr. Terry Batliner a Colorado dentist who has worked alongside dental therapists in other states, including some in the most remote parts of the country. When people are trying to find a job, keep a job, and work in the broader American society, it's important to look good, he said. Missing teeth, he said, are really a disadvantage for folks. Dental therapists needed especially in mountain and rural communities. Dental health problems also are a leading cause of school absenteeism for Colorado children. Batliner, a member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, was Associate Director of Center for Native Oral Health Research at the Colorado School of Public Health and worked with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation to help expand access to dental care in the U.S. communities. He said, Dental therapists are especially needed in mountain communities and rural areas of Colorado where there are few dentists. Dental therapists can also help reduce the cost of oral care. They get paid between what a dentist and a dental hygienist gets paid, he said, so they'll be providing oftentimes the same stuff that a dentist would provide, but they won't get paid as much, and so that can reduce the cost that is then passed on to the people. Employing local providers 
who understand the unique stresses and issues that affect their own communities helps them talk effectively with their patients about how to prevent disease because they can better relate to them, he said. And that has happened in Alaska, said Batliner, one of the several people who testified at the Capitol in support of Senate Bill 219 last year. Most of the people who are dental therapists in Alaska are native Alaskans. As of October 2021, Alaska had licensed 36 dental therapists. Minnesota, where there are three training programs, had 133, according to the American Dental Therapy Association. Dr. Carol Niferatos also testified in support of the bill. She oversees the dental program at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, which provides care to about 6,000 people per year. Most of the organization's clients are people who are homeless, and none are turned away when they walk in for an appointment. I support any thoughtful improvement in access to care for any underserved populations. Niferatos said, Vulnerable populations tend to need the types of services that dental health therapists are licensed to provide, which are basic levels to urgent needs, and removal of teeth that are causing patients pain or abscesses. According to dental therapists, I'm sorry, adding dental therapists to Colorado offices has been in discussion for about a decade, said Niferatos, who hopes to add such a provider to her own office. Overall, there's been a decline in the number of dental hygienists working in the U.S., with a drop-off occurring during the pandemic, she said. They're a lot scarcer, she said, so dental health therapists may be able to meet those needs because of the lack of hygienists. Information about how to become a licensed dental therapist in Colorado, along with a checklist, is available on the Colorado Dental Board's website. Colorado Democrats unveil effort to shield abortion, transgender patients from out-of-state legal consequences. This by Jesse Paul and Elliot Wensler. A slate of three bills would also regulate anti-abortion pregnancy clinics and change health insurance policy around abortions. Colorado Democrats on Thursday unveiled a trio of bills aimed at ensuring abortion and gender-affirming care in Colorado isn't subject to legal action initiated in other states, as well as reshaping health insurance regulations around the procedures and prohibiting deceptive advertising by anti-abortion pregnancy centers. The measures introduced Thursday in the Senate come a year after the legislature passed a bill enshrining abortion access in state law. That happened just before the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the 1973 ruling protecting the right to an abortion without excessive government restriction. Since Roe was overturned, conservative areas of the country have passed abortion restrictions leading to an influx of people coming to Colorado to terminate their pregnancies. Colorado has almost no abortion restrictions. Republican state legislatures and governors have also begun enacting laws limiting transgender care for young people. Republicans are likely to fight the Colorado bills, but they are in the minority in the legislature and have few tools to stop the policy changes. Here's what the legislation would do, according to bill fact sheets provided to the Colorado Sun and interviews with the measure sponsors. Blocking out-of-state legal action. 
The most substantive of the three measures takes aim at abortion restrictions passed in other states in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned, as well as laws passed by other states limiting gender-affirming care for transgender people. Senate Bill 188 would mandate that Colorado not recognize criminal prosecutions initiated in other states for people who receive, provide, or assist in access to abortion or gender-affirming care in Colorado. That would explicitly outlaw abortion-related arrests, extraditions, search warrants, and court summonses, or subpoenas. The bill would also bar state employees from participating or assisting in interstate investigations into abortion and gender-affirming care, and it would prohibit wiretapping related to an investigation of abortion or gender-affirming care. Additionally, abortion and gender-affirming care-related lawsuits wouldn't be recognized or, I'm sorry, or enforced by the state under this measure. State Senator Julie Gonzalez, a Democrat, Denver Democrat and lead sponsor of the bill said the idea behind the legislation is to prevent investigations into the things that are legal here in Colorado. Gender affirming and reproductive health care services are lawful here in Colorado. So why would Colorado law enforcement agencies, courts, or our governor investigate activity that is legal in the state, Gonzalez said. Other lead sponsors of the bill are Senator Soya Jaquiz Lewis of Boulder County Representative Meg Frolich of Englewood, and Representative Brianna Titone of Arvada. Our fundamental freedoms are constantly under attack through hurtful transphobic rhetoric, anti-gay bills, and egregious attempts to limit who we are. In Colorado, we say no more, Titone said, Colorado's first transgender lawmaker. She said this at a news conference at the Capitol. Governor Jared Polis signed an executive order in July prohibiting the state from assisting in criminal or civil abortion actions initiated in other states. The measure would also require Colorado prisons to to provide pregnant people with information on abortion access. Additionally, state medical boards would be prohibited under the measure from leveling professional consequences against people who provide or assist in abortions and gender-affirming care. Prohibiting Deceptive Advertising The second measure would prohibit deceptive advertising, namely around abortion pill reversal. The legislation is targeted toward anti-abortion pregnancy centers, but would apply to any organization purporting to offer pregnancy services. Senate Bill 190 would also be considered deceptive advertising to falsely purport to offer abortion services or Plan B. These centers open up near college campuses and in communities of color in order to persuade people to make decisions without understanding their full range of medically accurate reproductive health care, said Senator Faith Winter, a Westminster Democrat and one of the bill's lead sponsors. The other prime sponsors are Representatives Karen McCormick of Longmont and Elizabeth Epps of Denver and Senator Janice, McMarch- sorry, Janice Marchman of Loveland. Additionally, prescribing, offering, or facilitating abortion pill reversal would become unprofessional conduct for licensed, registered, or certified health care providers. Some states require abortion providers to tell their patients that they can reverse the procedure. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists said 
says claims about abortion reversal treatment are not based in science and that reversal procedures are unproven and unethical. Health insurance policy changes. The third and final bill deals with health insurance policy. Advocates say Senate Bill 189 would reduce surprise billing and remove patient cost sharing for treatment of sexually transmitted infections, as well as sterilization and abortion care. It would also create a state fund that providers may, on behalf of patients receiving abortion or reproductive health services, who are concerned about confidentiality. Ensure that the exception from step therapy and prior authorization requirements for HIV medications applies to medications prescribed by any authorized provider, not only pharmacists. Include family planning related services in the existing state reproductive health care program. Clarify that Medicaid's non-emergency medical transportation service can support patient transportation to abortions. Modernizes a statute from the 1970s to remove old references to young people needing to be referred by a member of the clergy or a state health worker to access contraception. Senate Majority Leader Dominic Moreno of Commerce City, Senator Lisa Cutter of Jefferson County, and Representatives Lorena Garcia of Adams County and Daphna Michelson-Jennett of Commerce City will be the prime sponsors. How Some Coloradans Could Shave Up to $19,000 Off a New Electric Vehicle Later This Year a state credit for income-qualified new and used EV buyers to trade in older gas cars will add up to $6,000 to existing lucrative discounts to push, to push electrification. This by Michael Booth. State officials are putting finishing touches on an electric vehicle rebate for income-qualified buyers willing to trade in older gas-fueled vehicle, adding up to $6,000 in price cuts on a new vehicle to a menu of credits that can already include $5,500 from utilities or up to $7,500 from federal sources. The program is expected to launch in mid-July with $2 million in state money over the following 12 months. Colorado is paying for the instant rebates and other EV infrastructure such as public chargers with a 6.9 cent portion of the 27 cent delivery fee passed as a part of a sweeping 2021 transportation policy and funding bill. Shoppers who are looking for used EVs and have an old car to trade in could get $4,000 from the new state rebate program, taken off the sales price at the ca cash register instead of rebated the next time they file taxes. Electrification advocates say upfront price cuts in the form of instant tax credits are the most attractive for shoppers considering EVs. The dealer then claims the payment from the state. State officials also announced a package of forthcoming energy and climate bills for the current legislative session that could add even more to those incentives. Colorado currently offers a $2,000 state tax credit for new EVs, no trade-in required, and elements of the bill package could increase the state's credit to $5,000. Not all of the credits and rebates will be stackable, though state officials are at pains to define how they can combine. 
Not all of those decisions have been made. Further confusing the matter is that the existing about-to-be-expanded state credit for new cars without a trade-in will be refundable, meaning qualified buyers could wipe out all of their state tax obligation and get a cash refund back. Late Thursday, the Colorado Energy Office said the proposed $5,000 state credit could be expanded by yet another $2,500 if the legislative package passes for vehicles priced under $30,000. That extra amount is intended to fill gaps for vehicles that don't qualify yet for the full $7,500 federal credit because not enough of their parts are made in the U.S., a CEO spokesperson said. The state's gap filler will boost lower-income buyers while the automakers revamp their assembly systems. An income-qualified customer making the trade-in could theoretically combine a $6,000 state trade-in rebate for a new car, a $5,000 state tax credit, and a $7,500 federal tax credit expanded this year for a total of nearly $19,000 off a new EV. Excel Energy and Black Hills offer a $5,500 rebate for income-qualified buyers of new EVs, which are stackable with the trade-in rebate, but not stackable with the state EV tax credit. Customers may have to choose. Some customers will be in the sweet spot of combining a number of rebates and credits for a qualifying car, says Travis Madsen, the Transportation Program Director for the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project. So the total stackable amount could be in the $20,000 plus range for a purchase that met all the eligibility criteria, he said. The federal tax credit is non-refundable, meaning it can only offset federal taxes the earner would pay otherwise. Those who are income qualified for the new state trade-in credit might not pay enough in federal taxes to benefit from the full $7,500 federal credit. The car being traded in must be a 2011 model or older and have failed or or have failed Colorado emissions tests. The trade in program dubbed Vehicle Exchange Colorado takes on multiple goals of state officials and environmental justice advocates. Taking older, higher polluting gas vehicles off the road can be one of the quickest ways to reduce ozone causing emissions from the transportation economy and significant additional credits for new and used EVs can put electrification in reach for four more households as Colorado agencies work to transform the collective vehicle fleet to run on cleaner electricity. The state's greenhouse gas reduction plan and efforts to come under EPA ozone limits depend on getting 940,000 EVs on Colorado roads by 2030. I like the concept, said Madsen. Reaching our climate goal will require a broad, society-wide shift in our vehicle fleet to zero-emission technology and fuel. The upfront purchase cost of a vehicle is one of the largest obstacles that we face, he said. The state's program should help push EVs out to people at different income levels, Madsen said. The Colorado Energy Office said the extracts... I'm sorry, said the exact amounts of the trade-in credits have not yet been set, but community presentations mention the $6,000 towards a new EV and $4,000 towards a used EV. More details should be set by April when the Community Access Enterprise Board related to the Colorado Energy Office will see a final plan. 
Fully electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles would qualify under current plans. The income criteria involved a household being below 80% of the area median income or, or be participating in another income-qualified program such as Medicaid. As an area median example, in Denver, a household would qualify for the trade-in EV credit if a single person was making less than $62,600 a year or a family of four made less than $89,400. The price of the used EV must be more than the rebate amount, and a new EV cannot be priced higher than $50,000. There are are a limited number of lower-priced EVs currently on the market, but the Chevy Bolt sells for about $26,000 to $28,000 before tax credits. Dozens of new EV models from all the major car manufacturers are expected to hit the market in the next year or two. Some have lowered prices as batteries got cheaper or companies want to get under the price caps to qualify for tax credits. Expansion of tax credits and rebates at multiple levels make the annual cost calculation better than ever, Madsen said, noting that transportation costs can eat up to 20% of a lower incomes family budget. Inflation and the temporary shutdown of the state's only gas refinery, Suncor Energy, pushed gas prices to $4 a gallon and means the typical Denver Metro household is spending about $3,000 a year on gas, Madsen said. Given current off-peak electricity prices at 16,580 miles driven a year, an EV like the Bolt would save a family about $2,400 on fuel, Madsen had calculated. Plus, there are no expensive oil changes and little other maintenance besides tires. So, if a low or moderate income person can get their hands on one, they offer meaningful savings that can help improve their financial position, Manson had said. And, as Eisenhower Tunnel turns 50, Colorado celebrates with a talk of a facelift for the crucial I-70 link. The highest point anywhere on I-70, the westbound tunnel and its eastbound twin have provided safe passage through the mountain for millions of vehicles. This by Joshua Perry. Thousands of vehicles travel through Eisenhower Tunnel on Interstate 70 each day, but on Wednesday, for a brief moment, the traffic stopped to let just three pass. A 1970 Plymouth Fury police cruiser, an antique fire truck, and an MG sports car of similar vintage. The procession was part of the Colorado Department of Transportation's celebration of the Eisenhower Tunnel's 50th birthday. Since the tunnel opened on March 8, 1973, millions of cars have crossed under the Continental Divide through the passage. When the ribbon was cut on the tunnel, 44.3 feet high and 47.5 feet wide, the $110 million price tag was the most expensive highway project ever embarked by the United States government. Three men died during the five years of construction. CDOT Executive Director Shoshana Liu said the Eisenhower Tunnel provided a safe, accessible alternative to driving on riskier mountain passes and changed the character of the state forever. For the last five decades, 50 years, the Eisenhower Tunnel has served as a great connector, tying east and west together in Colorado, she said. 
Speaking to a small crowd, the tunnel's eastern opening, it has provided a critical life-saving link, moving goods and services, and helped to mark Colorado as a world-class mountain destination. Many travelers through the tunnel might not realize that it's more than just a simple passageway through the mountains. Managing the 1.7-mile passage requires a control room where operators monitor the flow of traffic on walls of screens and a generator room, a sprinkler system, a water treatment system, and even a fire truck. Jessica Micklebust, CDOT's Denver Metro Region Director, said the look of the tunnel through which 524,151 vehicles passed just last month can be deceiving. It's an around-the-clock operation with men and women with special technical expertise who keep the tunnel open and safe. Since the tunnel was opened in 1973, we have not had one fatality in either of the tunnels. At 50, there's a certain historical charm to the look and feel of Eisenhower Tunnel, but it's also in the need of regular maintenance and maybe a makeover. Much of the equipment inside the tunnel system, like its 600-horsepower industrial fans, all 28 of them, capable of producing hurricane-force winds to clear noxious fumes, is original, or at least old. As part of CDOT's 10-year plan for infrastructure investment, the Eisenhower Tunnel and its eastbound partner, the slightly younger Johnson Tunnel, will have a $150 million update completed by 2024. Some minor work has already been done, but more robust renovation projects, like an automatic de-icing system, are slated to begin soon. CDOT spokesperson Presley Fowler has said. However, it's still, it'll still be the tunnel Colorado has loved for 50 years, he said. I'm sorry, she said. We don't want the tunnel to change the look and the feel of it. That's really been an important aspect while planning these infrastructure upgrades and repairs, making sure to honor the history. For decades, the tunnel has made traveling through the mountains much safer and efficient, CDOT spokes spokeswoman Tamara Rawlinson said. In her view, Colorado wouldn't be the state it is today without this crucial link through its alpine reaches. It's hard for me to say what it's going to look like 50 years from now for the tunnel, but it's it will be here continuing to serve the state, I'm very sure of that, Rawlinson said, and it will continue to be a vital connection for years to come. And with that, we thank you very much for your time. Thank you again. My name is Andrew Post. And thank you for joining us for the Colorado Sun. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.